0: Hi, this is Lucinda. I'm a healthcare accreditation coordinator and a registered nurse. I have no affiliation with the Joint Commission. I'm just trying to help out, get everybody ready for any surveys you may have coming up. Today, I'm going to be talking about infection control. Infection control refers to a group of activities to ensure that recommended practices for the prevention of HAIs are implementing and followed by healthcare staff, making healthcare staff safe from infection for patients, residents, clients, healthcare staff, other caregivers and visitors. So what the heck is a HAI? Well, that's a healthcare associated infection. It's an infection that develops in an individual who is cared for in any setting where healthcare is delivered. It's um, related to receiving healthcare and the infection not being present or incubating at the time healthcare services were provided. Basically, it's something that we gave to them or we passed along. Um, this is one of the top 10 causes of deaths in the United States. Certainly, everyone who has clinical contact with patients should wash his or her hands frequently to help prevent the spread of disease. However, effective infection prevention and control plans go well beyond this approach. A strong plan will have the input and support of hospital leadership and will stress communication and collaboration. Everyone involved in the daily operations of the hospital, from practitioners to receptionists to kitchen staff and dock workers, should play a role. Unless controlled or prevented, infections can spread in many ways, from patient to patient, patient to healthcare staff, healthcare staff or other caregiver to patient, patient to visitor, healthcare staff to healthcare staff, healthcare staff to visitor, or contaminated objects to people. In general, infection control programs are expected to adhere to nationally recognized infection control standards or guidelines, as well to regulations of other federal or state agencies. Examples of organizations with expertise in infection control are recognized sources of guidelines include the CDC or Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology or APIC, Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America or SHIA, And an example of regulations from other federal agencies are ones by OSHA related to protecting health care staff from the spread of infectious diseases. You have to remember that oftentimes um, the Joint Commission will refer out to these other organizations for guidance. If if they put every little thing into their standards manual, we would have encyclopedias of information. It would be a little ridiculous. So infection control practices are based on two underlying principles, standard precautions and aseptic technique. Let's go over these briefly. So a precaution is a measure taken beforehand to prevent harm or secure good. Without proper precautions, healthcare staff can spread infection and diseases. A standard precaution is a group of infection prevention practices that apply to all patients regardless of suspected or confirmed diagnosis or presumed infection status. This is all common sense things that we kind of already know as nurses. Um, Standard precautions are based on a principle that all blood body fluids, secretions, excretions except for sweat, non-intact skin and mucous membranes may contain transmissible infectious agents. The five elements of standard precautions are, y'all know them, hand hygiene, use of PPE or personal protective equipment, injection safety, safe handling of potentially contaminated equipment or surfaces, in the patient's environment, and respiratory and cough etiquette, which everybody better be wearing a mask. I'm not going to cover that today, but just be wearing your mask. Hand washing is one of the most important ways to prevent the spread of disease. The use of gloves in a healthcare environment does not negate the need for hand hygiene. Do you know what your organizational policy is on hand washing? This will be a question that gets asked during survey. Our policy states. We are to wash our hands with soap and water when hands are visibly soiled, before eating, after using the bathroom, when caring for a patient that is suspected with a diagnosis of C. diff or if they have diarrhea, um, and we're to wash our hands for at least 15 seconds using friction. Um, if your hands are not visibly soiled, we are to use the alcohol-based hand rub, of course, And You know, we're gonna do this before direct contact with the patient, before performing a procedure or inserting an invasive device that does not require sterile procedure. After contact with the patient's intact skin, so if you're doing a blood pressure or something like that, when moving from a contaminated body site to a clean body site during patient care, after removing gloves, and the same thing, you're gonna allow 15 seconds for sanitizing Uh, for the sanitizing process, but make sure to follow the manufacturer's directions on that. And if you're not familiar, become familiar with this. What kind of hand rub do you use? How long are you supposed to sanitize your hands for? And sometimes the manufacturer may say, you can only use this hand rub so many times in a row, X amount of times. And then you have to wash your hands with soap and water because there'll be a buildup on your hands. So make sure to look at that. And moving along, let's talk about safe injection practices. So the CDC, in order to eliminate unsafe medical injections, launched this campaign. It's called the One and Only Campaign. And the campaign's goal is to make sure that patients are protected each time they receive an injectable medication. Safe injection practices are part of standard precautions. A good rule to remember, and this is kind of what they preach, one needle one syringe one time and there's videos and everything check out the website the most common citations i've found in relation to this is nurses not disinfecting the rubber septum prior to piercing while trying to draw up some medication Uh, they get in a hurry and they just don't do it medication that is single use being left in the cabinet in a medication room to be used again medication vials not being dated when first open if it's a multi-use file. I personally, I'm a little OCD, so I personally write down when I opened it. I put my initials on it. I write the, I do the math and do the 28 days later um, and put expiration date on it. So 28 days later is the expiration date for most uh, IM medications, things like that, things you would inject, and or the manufacturer's expiration date, whichever comes first. And then I see vials that are expired. Uh, they just need to do better inventory. Um, and I see multi-dose vials enter the immediate patient area that are not dedicated for a single patient. And they're not discarded immediately after use. So I'm going to say that again. I, multi-use vials should not go into the patient area, the immediate patient area, unless it's just for that patient for a single use. And then discard it, even if it's a multi-use vial. Um, environmental measures is another hot topic this year. So during survey, do you know they're going to ask you these kind of questions. Do you know what the kill time is for the cleaning products you are using in your healthcare facility? Um, it's written on the container and you can always look before you answer a surveyor. Um, they're going to ask you does the product have to stay wet to be effective? Have how um, are you and your staff keeping track of the time to make sure, that it's staying wet for X amount of time. I know um, I worked at an endoscopy clinic a few years ago, and, you know, we had to clean everything with um, a, a product that contained bleach in it because we had to assume everybody had C. diff because most people were there for diarrhea and things like that. Um, so we actually had egg timers that we that we set, and we made sure the bed stayed wet for that amount of time and the wipes are sometimes really bad about that they'll kind of dry out so you if you agitate the container turn it up and down shake it like a margarita that liquid in the bottom is going to get soaked through and they'll be more saturated and be able to have a better wet time for you. Moving along and since we're kind of sort of on this topic let's talk about non-critical surfaces. Do you know what a non-critical surface is? It's a frequently touched. It's frequent in touch, closest to the patient. For example, like bed rails, side tables, bedside commodes, call buttons. The infection control program should address how to clean these areas with an EPA, and they will look to make sure it's an EPA or Environmental Protection Agency registered hospital disinfectant. It cannot be something from home. It should also educate you on um, other cleaners and disinfectants used in your facility and make sure you are using them in in, cor- uh, in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions. Boy, I repeat myself a lot. Is um, For instance, maximum 128, sometimes that's used at surgery centers and in veterinarian offices. Um, You have to dilute that usually it comes concentrated so they would ask questions and this is why it's nice to avoid things that you have to mix Um, how long is that good after it's diluted what did you dilute it with how much what should the concentration be what's the shelf life after you open it Um, did you label the bottle after with the proper identification according to osha regulations or whatever the safety data sheet says so It's better just to avoid that and get wipes. That's just my personal opinion, though. Um, For terminal cleaning after a patient's discharge, where all protocol followed, surveyors will ask um, your cleaning team and test them to make sure they're doing the process correctly and according to protocol. Do you have a cleaning schedule for areas and equipment to be cleaned regularly? What about for your ice machines? inspectors love to stick those little paper straws into those and see if they can get any goop out they'll also if they have an iphone they'll stick that iphone up there and take pictures to see if anything's growing inside i will say if you live in an area with hard water joint commission may cite you for um, the mineral buildup in the sinks that's more of an environment of care issue though and not infection control and of course they're going to see how you handle soiled linens and things of that nature So transmission-based precautions, let's talk about that. There's three types, contact, droplet, and airborne. Contact precautions are designed to reduce the risk of transmission by direct or indirect contact. Direct contact is just like it sounds. It's when you're in contact with a patient for a treatment like giving them a bath, turning a patient, things of this nature where you're actually touching them. Indirect is when you encounter a contaminated object like a patient's tray table, the bed rails you know things of this nature and it's also called a fomite if you can pick up something from an inanimate object like say the elevator buttons is a good example of a fomite norovirus is notorious for being um, transmissible this way and that is why a few years ago they kept having outbreaks on the cruise ships and stuff and if you go on a cruise nowadays everybody's cleaning railings especially on the stairs and elevator buttons Boy, I haven't been on a cruise in years. I wonder what it's like now with COVID. So now we're going to talk about droplet precautions. Of course, you're going to reduce the risk of encountering droplets. Droplet transmission involves contact of a susceptible person's mucous membranes or um, the nose or mouth or large, it's going to be large particle droplets basically. So large droplets can't remain in the air long and they can only travel about three feet or so. So, droplet precautions do not require special air handling. Airborne precautions, however, does. Airborne precautions are designed to reduce the risk of airborne transmission of uh, infectious agents. These are airborne droplet nuclei, small particles which remain suspended in the air for long periods of time. They can be dispersed by air current and deposited on a host within the same room or a longer distance depending on the air handling and ventilation. That's why our HVAC is so important. Engineering is so important. Um, these, need to, these patients need to be put in a negative pressure room. These would, for example, be people with things like TB or smallpox. Okay, obviously I'm not going to be able to cover everything in this podcast because infection control is so inclusive. It, it, it covers everything. So, Moving along, before I talk about point of care testing, I want to cover wave testing. These two terms, they are so confusing, they are so similar. In in our facility, we really refer to most machines as point of care testing. Wave testings are test uh, systems cleared by the FDA for home use. They are tests where it is hard to get an incorrect result. and the one that surveyors are going to really ask for is your blood glucose machine. So don't get so wrapped up in the definitions of each term. You can always ask a surveyor, can you be more specific? What do you mean wave testing? You know, and they'll be like, Hey, your blood glucose machine. That's really what I'm asking about. Oh, sure. I can tell you about that. In the clinics, there's a few more devices that fall under wave testing. But before you get confused about these terms again, um, they do seem alike, don't panic. Think about a spelling bee when you're talking to these surveyors. can you use um, can you use the word wave testing" in the sentence? Uh, you could also ask what kind of device would you like to learn more about? Can you be very, very specific with me um, because these terms are confusing. The terms for point of care and wave testing they're so close um, that a point of care can be waived or unwaved so is your head spinning now? Because mine is. Uh, What I want you to take from this is find out what device they want to know about. And they're going to want to focus on the process. They're not going to focus on the terminology that you may or may not know. Um, They're going to want you to demonstrate how to use it, how to clean it, you know, are you following manufacturer's instructions, things like that. So CMS defines point of care testing as a laboratory test performed using either manual methods, dipsticks, or handheld instruments, blood glucose meters, at or near the site of the patient care. Your point-of-care testing is like a location. These rapid tests support a clinical decision about the patient. Why are we talking about this in relation to infection control? Well, in 2010, the CDC and FDA published critical alerts and recommendations for safe handling of equipment, for blood glucose monitoring because there was an outbreak of hepatitis B in a long-term care facility. Uh, Some of us old timers may remember this, which resulted from the shared use of lancing devices and the shared use of point of care meters without cleaning and disinfection. The lancet device they're referring to was a single, uh, it was for a single patient. So the indications for glove use apply when performing blood glucose monitoring or point of care testing that involves potential exposure to blood or body fluids you do have to remember to not do all of your patients with the same pair of gloves of course you're going to change gloves and do hand hygiene right and what about lancets i know in my facility we use the single safety lancet so there's two types though The first is a safety lancet. It is a single use. It comes in one small piece Um, upon puncture. The needle is gonna retract and you're gonna throw that in the sharps container and not in the garbage. So wham bam, thank you ma'am. The second type is the multi-use device. It looks like a riding pin. You load a lancet each time you use it. So the pin part is like a loading device and you're gonna use it over and over. These were approved by the FDA as multi-use at one point but not anymore these are more for use for like a patient using a monitoring kit at home Um, now i'm specifically going to talk about blood glucose meters or device contamination so meters are susceptible to blood contamination there was a study performed and they looked at 600 blood glucose meters in 12 hospitals they identified blood contamination on 30 percent so i did the math and that's 180 meters 180 meters were contaminated, gross. So if blood is transferred from patient to patient, not not cleaned and disinfected after each use, uh, you could be exposing other patients to blood. Gloves can become contaminated as well. That's why we need to make sure and do hand hygiene, change those gloves. One factoid I found interesting and disgusting is hep B can remain viable after drying and storage for up to a week. So I mean and it's highly contagious. Make sure your facility is using uh, multi patient meters designed for professional use. I know sometimes in not in ours but other places I have been i've in ambulatory surgery centers I've seen home use meters being used, and you can definitely get cited for that. Make sure the disinfection solvent you are using to clean the meter in between use can kill HIV hep C and HEP B. Again, HEP B is really hard to kill. Please note that the 70% ethanol solutions are not effective against viral bloodborne pathogens. And the use of 10% bleach solutions may lead your device to start to degrade and not work right. So look for um, the EPA-approved cleaner, check your IFU. Now, of course, if you're if the manufacturer or the instructions for use say to use alcohol or or the bleach, do what they say. And if you have questions, always contact your manufacturer and ask those questions. And if they send you an email back, make sure to copy that in triplicate and store it away for a rainy day. You're going to need that. Um, again, I'm going to have to break infection control up into several different parts so I don't overload everyone. But this is the first part, so I hope you enjoyed it. And we'll get, dig deep into other subjects next time. Thank you and have a great day, everybody.